The CIS benchmarks are secure configuration recommendations for hardening specific technologies in an organization's environment. Each benchmark is the product of an ongoing consensus project involving the generous volunteer efforts of subject matter experts, technology vendors, public and private community members, academics, and the CIS benchmarks development team. CIS benchmarks are a key component of an organization's overall security against cyber attacks, and each CIS benchmark recommendation maps to the CIS critical security controls, or CIS controls. There are more than 100 CIS benchmarks across 25 plus vendor product families available through free PDF download for non-commercial use. CIS benchmarks coverage includes security guidelines that are applicable to cloud provider platforms and cloud services, containers, databases, desktop software, server software, mobile devices, network devices, and operating systems. Learn more about CIS benchmarks by visiting CISECURITY.org slash benchmarks. Podcast with your host, Chris Glandon, serving cybersecurity straight up with no chaser. Let's hit the bar and grab a drink. Excuse me. Hey, excuse me, buddy. Yo, move, man. Damn. Oh, hello, Chris. My apologies. Patron ID 8701 has exceeded his threshold of alcoholic intake. In other words, he has had one too many. Yo, what's up, Boozebot? Yeah, you're right. And your AI is 100% accurate on that one. That dude is stumbling into the wall, man. He obviously has no idea where he's going. Boozebot, you may have to switch to aggressive mode and remove this guy soon. Affirmative. I have also detected that this is his first appearance here and obviously is a script kitty he is accompanied by an acquaintance he departs from the bar to go out and smoke a cigarette then when he returns he cannot locate his acquaintance that is waiting for him at the bar what how is that possible i've calculated two theories theory number one he is smoking a very strong cigarette or theory number two it's this killer new drink i'm pouring tonight and he cannot handle this booze bot sleeper, son. <laughs> you need to stop hanging around with Tony on your nights off, man. You're starting to sound like him. And I have a different theory. Check it out. See, here at Barcode, all patrons at the bar are typically on their laptop with a drink next to it. You know, that's just the way it is. This drunk dude obviously is so inebriated, he keeps approaching a random person at the bar. Then, once he realizes that that first person he bothered is not his friend, he's going to randomly go to the next bar stool either to the left or to the right. I've seen this before. You know, think of it like this. The easiest way to simulate him is you flip a coin. Heads, he's going to go right. Tails, he's going to go left. You just never know. 
threat level increased. Exactly. And his probability doesn't get any better with each attempt. He's what I call a classic drunk. He just can't handle his liquor. But you know what? He isn't as bad as a quantum drunk. Quantum drunk? My knowledge DB is not familiar with that term. What the hell is that? Well, you take the classic drunk where you flip a coin for each direction. With the quantum drunk, the coin is quantum. It can be in a superposition of heads and tails at the same time. The quantum drunk is following a path that is a superposition of left and right at each bar stool. While my ML processes this, I will alert security. But first, since you found a seat at the bar yourself, I'm going to generate this superpositional drink for you. It's called an absinthe drip. You pour one and one half ounces absinthe into a stemmed glass. Place a slotted absinthe spoon over the rim of the glass and set a single sugar cube on top of the spoon. Using an absinthe fountain, drip four to six ounces of ice cold filtered water over the sugar cube into the glass. When the mixture is completely cloudy, the drink is ready. Enjoy. Thanks, Boozebot. Well, speaking of quantum, two awesome friends of mine who happen to know a thing or two about quantum just walked in. Import this into your knowledge database. Acknowledged. See you next round. Excuse me, sir. I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Victoria Kumarin and Mark Carney are the founders and organizers of Quantum Village, which will debut next month at DEF CON 30. So today, Barcode is getting quantum. Victoria, Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello, hello. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So as you both know, I was hoping to have you both here on site for this conversation at the new Barcode studio, still in progress in Delaware. Um, (laughs) But unfortunately, that didn't work out. But uh, you both have Delaware connections, is that right? I do. Yeah. <laughs> I think everyone in the world who has a company might have a Delaware connection. Um, someone someone did tell me the other day, I thought only companies live there. But no, yeah. <laughs> I do quite <laughs> often. <laughs> um, I was going to say, my main connection is knowing that friends who have companies there. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a plus that you know Delaware is a state, because I often talk to people that I say Delaware, and they're like, what? state is that in, in? Oh, wow um biden yeah. coming back and uh, being president has been very helpful for that because he's been doing really good publicity for the state <laughs> <laughs> i had a lot of people being like i know where you are now <laughs> <laughs> yeah whether you're for or against biden he at least put delaware on the map exactly. so yeah, yeah, yeah. i do i do i'm a big fan of rehoboth delaware which he also likes and uh I t- I've been on the bike route that he goes on, so I sort of feel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I Did you fall know. off there? <laughs> no, I don't think we should go there. No, unfortunately not. But I will admit, I was going very slow because it had been about sort of 10, 10, 15 years since I'd been on a bike, and this was during pandemic. So it was one of the sort of few things you could do, and that sort of encouraged me to sort of get out there and get healthy, I guess. That's cool. And Mark, you're currently in Paris, is that right? I am currently in Paris. Uh, as of recording tomorrow, I am speaking at Hack in Paris, uh, actually on post-quantum cryptography and the quantum threat uh, for enterprises. So yeah, it's uh, it's kind of a nice, 
arrangement that I get to try some of the material here first, uh, although obviously it'll be heard later. Yes, not too much later. So hopefully if, if that session gets recorded, we can post it on the episode notes and, and point people that way. If not, we'll, we'll catch you at Quantum Village. Oh, absolutely. But uh, I do want to ask you both, and we can start with Victoria, if you don't mind. Um, you know, talk to me about your evolution into security and how you personally became focused on quantum computing. Sure. Um, mine, I think like what I'm seeing, like a lot of people is quite convoluted. Um, I've actually got a art and design background. I spent some time, which I'm realizing is actually very helpful. I think, um, you know, cybersecurity certainly is quite a multidisciplinary, um, requires a skill set that's fairly multidisciplinary. Um, and then I moved into finance. So I've always understood the sort of business side, um, and that's like the investing side, uh, um, and also on the sell side. So I did that. And then I started working with some startups. I think like everyone these days, sort of your right of passage, it's quite a nice way of dipping your toe in the water because any startups like, oh, wow, you know, someone with actual real life experience willing to work um, and working around the sort of machine learning um, applications uh, around malware detection, things like that, all the, all the good and fun stuff wrapped into AI which obviously I think about five years ago would have been known as snake oil <laughs> in the security world or certainly with, with a lot of suspicion, but then also a lot of adoration. And I think having witnessed that, obviously with quantum computing, there was sort of some rumbles again about five years ago when there was sort of a resurgence. And certainly I think in the last year or two, um, there's been that kind of build up with a lot of people recognizing its power and, its capabilities and that it's sort of coming um, and that, you know, the defense capabilities and obviously the offensive capabilities and then the really good, exciting ones that I think we're going to talk about as well. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, and Mark, how about you? I came to it. So I first encountered quantum computing as like a module when I was studying. Um, and I, I thought, oh, that's really cool. And then promptly never thought of it again until someone said, uh, oh, what are we going to do about the quantum threat? And I was like, what quantum threat? You know, being threatened by photons in a back alley. Um, but no, the quantum threat turns out it's a real legitimate sort of idea uh, that quantum computing is going to come to a level of maturity that causes problems for cybersecurity. So I was dealing with it from the, uh, my role as, you know, I'm a cybersecurity researcher. Um, um, and I advise a lot. So, you know, there's all the doing, you know, pen tests or red team engagements and then writing reports. And then when you do the research side, there's also a lot of consultancy that goes with that for sure. Um, and so I was picking it up there and I wasn't thinking too much of it. I found a few papers, I read them. And the more I read them, the more I understood. And then I eventually pieced together this idea that actually doing um, you know, doing more quantum stuff, quant learning quantum information theory more properly was very interesting. And so I just carried on. Um, so that's kind of how I came to it, more through a kind of a more sedate, uh, you know, work-life kind of a thing. Yeah. So, Mark, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. For those that are unfamiliar with quantum computing, like myself, I haven't done the research. I, I don't have hands-on experience with quantum computing, 
Um, and like Victoria mentioned, you know, I've seen the the aggressive path that quantum computing has taken over the past few years. Yeah. Um, is it possible that you could uh, explain it to us in terms of what quantum computing is and what it consists of? Yeah, sure. So a common misconception with quantum computing is that it's just faster computing. We're used to seeing that Moore's law growth. We're used to seeing, oh, if we just keep jamming transistors and jamming parallelization in, we get to somewhere faster. And there's a misnomer that quantum is just that. It's not. Quantum computing is not going to make Microsoft Flight Simulator run any better or worse. You're going to have to just give NVIDIA yet more money, and then it will work properly, I'm sure. So that's what quantum computing isn't. What is it? It's a way of looking at computation that is quite different. So we're used to bits, okay? That's the language of computers, bits, zeros and ones. If you could imagine that you could have a bit as a little arrow pointing up and a, for, for a zero and pointing down for a one, then you could imagine that arrow might be balanced between the two of them. And that's a way of looking at superposition. The idea that you have this balanced kind of uh, two states superimposed on each other, they're equally likely. So when you do a measurement, that's when you actually get the output from a quantum computer. And the measurement says, oh, zero or one. And what is different is that with a switch, with a transistor, when you ask it zero or one, we've built them to say zero, 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 or one, 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 one. They'll give you the same answer. A quantum computer won't. It'll give you a zero or one with a probability of zero or one. So it's basically probabilistic computing. Now, probability has a lot of power to it, especially if you can learn how to control the qubits, not just individually, but also together. So the ability to have two qubits interact with each other in a way that you control the state between those two qubits. Qubits being the one or the zero? Qubits being the fundamental unit of quantum computing. So okay. a qubit is a thing that can be a zero or a one when it's measured. Think of it this way. When it's measured, it's a bit. It's a zero or a one. But before it's measured, it's a qubit, which can do things like superposition, which is one of the main kind of properties. It can also be entangled. So you can actually have a qubit that is strongly and mathematically related to the other, to another qubit on, you know, the other side of the computer or on the other side of the planet. Quantum mechanics doesn't really care. So quantum computing is a very different way of approaching it that lets you deal with notions and ideas from physics in a way that is computationally advantageous. And that's really the power of quantum computing. So what are we talking about there? We're talking about the ability to compute over every possible key in a key space. If I have 128 qubits, I can compute over all possible keys. And there are certain algorithms that might, and I say might, there's no, we're yet to actually see a 128-bit uh, AES key, for example, be broken on a quantum computer. We haven't seen that yet. But the theory says that it can be done. And we know how we think we should go about it in a way that, well, we think works. And the little toy versions we've done, they work. So why would you go over the whole key space so that you can extract the key? Why haven't we seen that yet? Is it just the, the cost of that process? 
It's the cost of the process. It's also the fact that it's really bloody hard. Okay. Right? It is a hard problem. So to give you an idea about how you make a qubit, there's lots of different ways. There's no universal transistor. So when you saw uh, microchips first coming out, you saw a standardization in the way in which we thought about transistors, the way we built transistors. And the transistor became the fundamental building block of binary circuits. So the idea of a state of you know a solid state controllable switch, with qubits we haven't got there yet. But when you think about how some of the qubits are made, that's going to give you a clue as to why it's hard. So one thing uh, is an ion trap qubit, and literally what you do is you take a little area about the size of a basketball, enclosed in metal, and you pump all the air out of this space. So there's less. There's more nothingness inside that chamber than there is in outer space. Okay. So this is like really empty. You then make it really cold. Okay. How cold? If you're familiar with degrees Kelvin, zero being absolute zero, you know, you can never get there, but it's the coldest temperature theoretically. You're talking about one or two degrees Kelvin at the hottest. Jeez. Yeah, so we, we build we build this, and then what you do to have a quantum computer is you take an individual atom, one, literally just one atom, and you suspend it in a little, like, cup made from radio waves. Interesting. And then to control it, you hit it with lasers. Like, everything in quantum sounds cool. That's the one thing you can certainly say about quantum computing is that everything's, I've said space, I've said impossible vacuum, I've said impossibly low temperatures, you know, lasers are involved, radio frequency cups. I mean, when was the last time you lifted something with a, with, you know, an antenna? You know, you probably don't do that every day, right? But that's what you do. And if you look at the way that uh, IonQ is one company who make quantum computers that do this, uh, Continuum are another company that have huge, uh, you know, sort of uh, quantum computers, most of which, most of the quantum computer is actually the control circuitry, which is something we'll talk about in a bit in terms of like the, you know, how do you threat model or what's the attack surface of a quantum computer? Like, you know, that's a really interesting question because there's so much that goes into making qubits do what we want them to. But to give you a scale of the problem, a qubit is something, is some fundamental unit of uh, physics that is directly manipulated. I won't say controlled because that's slightly not the right picture. So to give you, so that's 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 why you've you've not seen huge scale quantum computers because just getting ten atoms to float in ten individual radio frequency cups, yeah, in a vacuum, well, you know, emptier than outer space, that's also very very extremely cold. difficult to pull off. Exactly. So, you know, scaling that up, and that's what they're trying to do now. They're trying to scale that idea up um, so that we can have, you know, a hundred atoms floating in space, you know, expertly controlled by, you know, very advanced electronics and control systems. But that's the kind of challenge you've got to to get over. And that's not even the only kind. There are transmon qubits, there are... um, uh, topological qubits. Uh, there's potential for doing uh, quantum computation with photons, so photonic qubits. Uh, there's there's a lot of different ways of approaching this problem. Um, none of them seem to be universal enough and reliable enough, which is why none of them has really won out yet. I'm sure at some point we'll get a big development. Someone will work out a really cool engineering thing, which will then be able to say, okay, this is how we scale. 
And everyone will probably follow suit, I imagine. I don't know. I haven't got a crystal ball. Um, but I think that that goes some way to explain why we've not got quantum computers on our desktops yet. Gotcha. Um, <laughs> no, that makes sense. I'm still processing it, but it makes sense to me. Um, but let's talk about quickly, you know, our industry and cybersecurity and, and what you just said, you know, I, I can visualize it, but how does that directly relate to cybersecurity and how can it, in your opinion, impact us and, and what we do? I guess the immediate one <laughs> would be uh, in terms of cryptography. Um, the fact that quantum computers are likely to break RSA public key cryptography, which we are, I don't know, most of our lives sort of rely on. Um, that's probably the most immediate one. Um, fortunately, these computers aren't um, oper- fully operational now, or some suspect they may never be, although I think that view is sort of diminishing. But the potential is uh, there, so it's, it's almost like you have yeah, to think ahead I- in terms of that. And there's certainly, you know, the money um, of recent years um, is being put into it, that there is that kind of almost like, I imagine, you know, the space race in the 60s, it's something um, comparable to that. So you mentioned breaking RSA public key cryptography, but would it help on the other side in terms of um, strengthening cryptography? Absolutely. And that is something that is going on by NIST. they have an open call right now to look at new methods of cryptography um, and those are being evaluated. I believe they're in the third stage um, with a lot of delays, uh, which for just getting the read on the community right now, um, you know, we were sort of expecting to have new standards published this year. Um, part of why we thought Quantum Village would be perfect for this year was kind of in tandem with that. Um, but I know, uh, Mark, certainly you've got a, a bit of a more of an insight into what's being done on the sort of organizational level. Yeah, so um, we're all anticipating and waiting for NIST to publish their post-quantum cryptography PQC cipher results. And they're basically going to turn around and say, OK, these are the ones that made it through several years of very deep and uh, careful analysis. Um, some have fallen off quite graciously. You know, they were analyzed and said, oh, it's not quite strong enough. It's not quite good enough. And then others have fallen off quite dramatically. Uh, one was called Rainbow. And you might have seen some uh, news articles that Rainbow was broken, um, meaning that uh, the someone found that you could break uh, the rainbow post quantum cipher with a regular laptop in about a weekend. Jeez. Um, yeah, apparently no one told them it had to be classical safe as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it, but that's unfortunate. I think really, um, I don't think they intended that particular gap, but it turns out there was enough leverage in one of the requirements on rainbow that you could actually, uh, uh you could leverage it to be able to, uh, get out and discern parts of uh, the original key. Um, so ultimately, we're going to be waiting for NIST to publish. A lot of people are holding their breath. Um, there's There's been some kind of rumblings around various communities, especially around like risk and compliance, because NIST haven't really said much about what's going to happen with uh, FIPS, the Federal Information Pro- uh, Processing Standard, which is like a bedrock 
requirements for any large-scale data processing corporation that does anything in America, uh, which is basically everyone, you know. Um, so they haven't said too much about how it's going to affect that. So what does a post-quantum world really look like? I don't know entirely. And that's part of the conversation we want to get rolling. Like, we've got huge organizations who are going to need at some point to move over to these new cryptographic ciphers, which are so they're still classical ciphers. They're still things that run on regular computers, but you're going to need to to install them, to standardize them first, get the code ready, get it tested, and then push it out to everyone, like literally everyone. Um, That's that's not a straightforward task. If you look at some like of the more interesting interview questions, like, oh, how would you move a country from driving on the left to driving on the right? Like, oh, that's, that's, that's quite difficult. But then you can see that Norway did it in the 60s, and you can kind of read how they went about it. It's actually, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one change that kind of, you know, if you were careful about it, it all worked. But post-quantum is, just, is, is a huge thing. You know, all new ciphers, new key lengths, new cipher suites, new cipher modes, new hashing algorithms, everything's different. And so everything is unfamiliar. And that's the real danger, like people making mistakes because it's so new. How are we going to get people trained and how are we going to get people aware? And that's where kind of Victoria and I came to the idea of Quantum Village, Like, how can we look at these technologies, not just post-quantum cryptography, it's not just post-quantum village, but obviously a huge thing for security is, you know, post-quantum cryptography. How can we get the people to understand it, to understand the threats around? Make it a bit more friendly and fearful. Although although arguably we probably are at risk right now um, with store now decrypt later being probably what's touted around with the idea that, you know, we are probably all being hacked with a view of, of someone storing the data to then decrypt it once they have a quantum computer. Um, and I think we also need to be just a little careful when you send messages like that because, you know, it's sort of that kind of, oh, everything's on fire. And, you know, that usually leads to more chaos than control. Give me a dollar amount on building a quantum computer. Like say an attacker is going to build a quantum computer. What's that going to run them? Oh, I, I, I don't think at this stage where the attacker would build it, but I'm sure you could probably look up what sort of some of the SPACs okay. um, are doing because there are some <laughs> listed companies or you could, you could, we could probably get some data together. Um, there's, certainly, there's certainly some resources out there. You can't go to Best Buy and get what you need to build this computer. No, but, <laughs> <laughs> but there's a lot of sort of, you know, billions and, and sort of floating around. And I think that's probably where making people more quantum aware and sort of getting buy-in is quite important because I think it, it has become a sort of nation state concern. Mm. And, you know, I, you know, just speaking in the West, for instance, like our spending might not, not necessarily be comparable to other countries. So there is that kind of definitely a, a sort of competition going on, I think, um, to see who could get there first. Um, but I mean, I, mean a, I imagine it's accelerating year on year. It's certainly kind of doubling and um, still re- relatively small, perhaps, in relation to other industries, though. Yeah. I'd imagine. I mean, there's also, so, I mean, I'm, I think, a bit more of an optimist. Um, I think that the way that quantum computing companies have gone is they've, is, so I, I've heard through a friend that you, you can't buy them. 
even though there are companies that make them, you can't actually buy them. What they want to do is push it out as a service. And you can see why. They can control the uptime and the downtime. There's, you know, there's a service contract with themselves, which makes it a bit more straightforward. So what you really can do, what they're starting to look at selling is you know, services, access to quantum computers, time on quantum computers. And the way that they're doing that is they're kind of federating it through the cloud providers. So Microsoft Azure, uh, Google uh, CERC, C-I-R-Q, uh, IBM Kiskit, and Amazon Bracket, um, or if you're feeling really, because it's, it's a, so Bracket is the notation name. <laughs> so people call it Amazon Bracket, but a physicist will very quickly come from behind the curtain and correct you. I think you'll find it's Bracket. <laughs> um, Good to know. Already got snobbery going on, don't worry. Um, but like sort of now you can get access to it. And I, I think that's that's double-edged in a potentially good way because we want to engage people with this technology. And now there are cloud services that are relatively inexpensive to free um, where you can actually use for real a quantum computer right now. You could write code, you can run through a, a Python notebook. It's all in, all the interfaces are written in Python APIs. So you could just run a notebook and you can send your circuit off and it will be run on a real quantum computer and your results will come back and you can analyze them. So although on the one hand, you're exactly right, Victoria, we are not spending as much and we are falling behind on a bit of a skills gap. The potential for fixing that, I think, is that Absolutely. And I mean, with a, with, with cloud, it, it does make it accessible. I, I imagine, um, you know, a few decades ago, if you were a researcher, you had to be near sort of the latest supercomputer. You know, you couldn't have that access. And there's certainly something wonderful um, in that. But I mean, perhaps for certain researchers, not being able to physically get their hands and see what's really going on behind um, and see what the secret sources might be uh, slightly frustrating. Um, but, you know, there are other aspects, I imagine, you know, relying on AWS's security versus their own, you know, helps kind of lower other costs as well. Yeah, so QAAS coming your way soon. Yeah. Already here. So. Already here, yeah. <laughs> so how about, how about uh, you know, the training aspect for, for those that are interested in quantum? Is there any, you know, training out there that, that people can take advantage of? Obviously, you want to get to Quantum Village to, to start the conversation. Um, but is there anything that's available right now that you guys recommend? Oh, there's lots. I think, I think from our perspective, we will, we will, we do have like a sort of page of links. Um, you know, everyone from IBM, um, to say Sandbox AQ, a lot of these companies are providing a lot of good starting courses. Um, I think cause we are in that era of, um, open learning, which is really fantastic. You know, there's definitely stuff on Coursera. I don't know, Mark, if you've got specific ones, um, to point out. Sure. So there's uh, courses on Coursera. You said there's courses on Udemy. Um, some of those are quite advanced. Some of them are less advanced. Uh, some are more hands-on. There's a really good learning suite from uh, Kiskit, mm -hmm. uh, which has a, I think it's kiskit.com slash learn, um, which is like a really nice resource, really well laid out. Yeah, that's uh, the but, IBM one, isn't it? 
Yeah, that's, the, that's IBM. Sorry, Qiskit uh, is IBM's uh, quantum computing Python library. There's, there's actually, I think they've got something coming out in a couple of weeks if there's someone who who's very keen to do a sort of um, remote learning if they really want to delve into yeah. it. Um, nice. And then on the other side, I mean, at some point someone's going to say there's a really good book, um, but there is actually a really good book, which is self-contained, as in it contains a good overview of how quantum computers are put together. Uh, it covers over the you know the building blocks and then how you turn those building blocks into uh, quantum algorithms. Um, and then also, just because of completeness, uh, the, the last section is an entirely about just a, a refresher on the mathematics you need. You actually don't need much. Like, if you have quantum information without the, the, the physics, like, the mathematics of quantum information is not higher than high school uh, vectors and matrices and linear algebra. Um, now, that might still inst- you know, instill fear in a good number of people, and that's fine. Um, but if you want to get a, quite a deep dive, there's a book called Quantum Computing and Applied Approach, um, which uh, by Jack Hedery, which is uh, I've recommended it for a long time. It it has all of those pieces built in. Um, for post quantum cryptography, there's a book of the same name uh, published by Springer. I think that's Dan Bernstein and company from Eindhoven University, which has got everything you want to do uh, to understand the primitives about the the post-quantum ciphers. So depending on which thrust you're after, whether you want to learn how to do program a quantum computer or whether you want to learn how these post-quantum algorithms are going to be affecting your life and how to understand them better, um, I'd say those two are probably the books I would recommend for people's libraries. Yeah, if, if anyone wants a lighter one, there is a quantum computing like wired guide, which I sort of chew through at the airport kind of thing by Amit Katwala. Um, oh, yeah. You know, it's like a hundred page thing. Uh, you can sort of even give it to a curious relative if you are quite um, <laughs> technical as well, um, which I think is always always nice because you can kind of just get a sort of bird's eye view over the impacts and, and the exciting things as well that's coming, not just the sort of scary ones perhaps. Yeah, that was really well written. And I think he's done a lot of articles in Wired, I think. Mm. So, oh, nice! Yeah, there's some re- there's some really good communication through tech communication journalists out there that we think ho- hopefully we can get them to Quantum Village as well because we we definitely um, I think are trying to ensure that that communication piece is 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 helped forward. Do you guys know of any government initiatives or national initiatives to to boost funding around quantum computing? or to boost these educational and training efforts or, or is it, I know, you know, Mark, I know you said that this was part of your curriculum. Is there any curriculum in, in academia today that focuses on quantum computing? So in academia, there's been courses on quantum computing for quite a while. Um, in fact, my alma mater, University of Leeds, uh, one of the guys who invented, who co-invented one of the foundational algorithms, the Deutsche Yoja, so Yoja was actually at Leeds for a while, he taught a quantum computing course about 15, 20 years ago. Oh, wow. Um, uh, I mean, the, the algorithms that break cryptography, like Shaw's algorithm, was invented in 1994. Uh, uh, Love Grover invented uh, Grover's, what is now called Grover's Search, 
1996. So we've actually had a strong background. It's a usual story, you know, engineers or uh, computer scientists come along and then there's some physicist or mathematician in the background going, yeah, here's the last 50 years on that subject for you. You're welcome. <laughs> um, it's kind of how they've treated it. In terms of like also more more active like courses and uh, initiatives, um, I can speak from the EU perspective for sure. Uh, the UK is building a national quantum computing center, which has got a big mandate for developing and incubating quantum startups, developing quantum computation, developing an academic understanding, and also fostering education programs. I'm not entirely certain quite what that looks like right now. I don't think they've finished building their headquarters yet, but like there's there's a big investment there. Likewise, in the Netherlands, you have um, they have departments or groups that usually end in the word Delta. So they have had the security Delta for a while, which a few people might have heard of, who do a lot of work in cybersecurity, bridging policy, uh, compliance, and technical people. Well, they've just announced um, or just started the Quantum Delta, which has got like 650 million euros over X many years funding to do almost a similar thing, as I mentioned, for the British one. So uh, FOST, they have a, they're planning on having a silicon fabrication lab, and they're going to build quantum computers and, uh, again, incubate startups, but push education programs. There's a lot of people who are realizing, certainly there, that there is a gap and it we need to do something to sort of try and close it. I'm not too sure what the American perspective is, though. I mean, I think, I mean, definitely, you know, America has the National Science Foundation. Um, I've, I've done a little research grant with them, and, and they are, I think, the sort of OG in, in funding those more kind of blue sky um, research projects. Um, and they are doing quite a lot, and there are sort of centers popping up. I know there's, I think, in Chicago, there's quite a sort of burgeoning um, quantum startup community there. Um, and certainly I think you're noticing, I think we've all got this sort of, uh, I hate this word, innovation. And you sort of, I don't know, whenever I flip between the UK and the US, every time I go back, someone's telling me that, you know, this town or this, I don't know, Gibraltar is going to be the crypto capital or, you know, <laughs> and so on. I'm sure, I'm sure in Delaware, I mean, I always know that in Delaware, we've got credit cards, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, things have got to sort of develop in certain pockets. And um, what's it? Uh, Boulder, Colorado is obviously kind of a, a big epicenter for quantum computing. So, there's a lot. There's a lot of activity, and certainly all the big, you know, universities and uh, labs are definitely getting in on it. I think there, there's probably going to be an element of not perhaps revealing on what's going on, um, but we can definitely pull together some some stats. The NSF did also publish, I think, a document called "American Leadership in Quantum." So there's definitely a drive that side. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah, we could become, uh, Delaware could become like Area 52, where everything's, you know, classified, <laughs> and then and then we just unleash it. <laughs> I, I, I still quite, I get excited when I sort of drive around like the DC area, and it's like Quantico, the Pentagon, <laughs> like, and I've got no idea what these are, but, you know, friends will tell me, or colleagues will tell me, oh, like, this is really important and secretive. <laughs> so. Yeah. So, yeah, as quantum computing continues to accelerate, you know, I'd love to see the quantum aspect become more prevalent in 
cybersecurity curriculums. And, and that I don't see happening right now. I'm sure, I'm sure there is still grappling with like machine learning threats and things. Yes, right? so exactly. Sort of like, let us digest this buzzword <laughs> before we go on to the next one. And then you'll probably get some networking guys like, can we deal with the real problems that are you know prevalent today? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think that Quantum Village may, you know, expose that need. And, and that's what I'm hoping for. We're definitely hoping that and, and, and hoping just to kind of make it more familiar, make people more just aware. You know, you don't necessarily need to become an expert, but understand the implications and be sort of measured about planning. Certainly, I think for InfoSec professionals, I'm very curious to see how they react. Um, we were at RSA earlier this month and it was actually quite interesting people received it quite well i was sort of expecting um you know maybe it's because you weren't sort of dishing out you know we're gonna catch 99 of your problems or you know <laughs> you know those kind of outlandish claims that people were sort of i don't know anything about this tell me about this or i feel like i need to know a bit more than i do um yeah so putting quantum computing within cybersecurity curriculums would just be too soon at this point. I think, I think you're right uh, in terms of, because the usefulness just isn't there yet. So quite how we're going to use quantum computing for things that we definitely know it's got an advantage for. So things like actually quantum, so quantum computers you can think of as incredibly efficient optimizers. Even though they take all this energy to be very cold and very empty and all that other stuff, like actually they're still really efficient at like finding a minimum in a search space which correlates to a minimum on a curve that is based on a machine learning problem. It's in the training side. Um, or if you're looking at ways of doing optimization across different uh, network problems or traveling salesman style problems. Quantum computers are really good at that. That's where you can think they're basically brilliant optimizers, first and foremost. They will do other stuff, I am sure. But right now, most of the theory says that the place we're going to start is in optimization. So they have applications in finance, in machine learning, in... Oh yeah, the fund managers are already in on it, aren't they? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Very much so. Yeah. But we've still not seen a quantum computer that can actually deliver an advantage to a bank or hedge fund that I've seen so far, unless they're keeping it very secret, which wouldn't surprise me. Um, but we, we we haven't seen that. And I think until we see that, you're not going to see the SANS course in yeah. Grover's search yeah. or quantum algorithms. It, it takes a while. I mean, I, I was talking to people recently and even people who've got, say, like a machine learning or AI-based security startup, like when you listen to actually what they're providing their customers, you know, and they're being quite truthful and very humble, it's not really uh, perhaps the technical research that they're experts in, but it's actually like creating, say, a no-code solution <laughs> so that, you know, infosec professionals can, you know, hire more people that can just get in there and solve the problem. They don't need to be deeply technical. Um, so I think in terms of, you know, cybersecurity, there's still a lot of underlying things that need to be built up before a lot of even that kind of research gets onboarded because obviously there's lots of other technologies and people going trying to build blockchains and in, in um, corporates going on and I don't know whether they're finding much utility. Um, maybe I'll meet someone at DEFCON this year who'll tell me how to <laughs> Yeah, exactly. But, um, 
you know, and we're, we're all for that. We're all for that discussion. Um, you know, we're excited to have people say like, you're out of your mind. Um, <laughs> but you know, there are, there are things that are coming that sort of use, utilize quantum effects, maybe not quantum computers. And, you know, we, We've already got things that have come out of quantum theory, for, for instance, such as transistors and MRI and things like that. So a lot of this is very, very plausible. I think that more immediately you will see uh, quantum courses on things like post-quantum cryptography because you'll have a need for it. You will need the workforce to understand it. So you'll have a, a requirement for that. Along with that will come things like uh, what I think called quantum key distribution, where you actually use quantum physics to generate encryption keys between two parties. That's a bit of a gnarly subject for me anyway, because um, I haven't seen anyone producing. So I've seen like Toshiba have installed with uh, uh, British Telecom, BT, a link between two factories, and they're very proud they got it working. But that's not like an enterprise minimum viable product. And quantum key distribution was, broadly speaking, invented in 1984, uh, Bennett and Brassard, 1984. It's called BB84. Another uh, development of that was Eckert in 1991, so uh, E91. I've not seen much since, I mean, there's also development since then, but since there's proof of concepts, like lab-based proof of concepts, there's not been much by way of developing out a a minimum viable product that's suitable for enterprise. And after 38 years, you might start thinking, does that mean that it's got major challenges to its viability? And it turns out the answer is like, yes. Um, the mathematics that makes QKD secure is intrinsically related to the, the fiber or the medium that you use transmit. So regular cryptography, you could do TLS over Wi-Fi, over Morse code if you wanted to, as long as you transmit all the numbers and, you know, do the handshake in some way, the mathematics makes it secure. But if you do quantum key distribution, the thing that you're sending, the photons or the electrons that you're sending to do the exchange are intrinsically related to that security. Okay. And actually, there's been nearly over half a dozen attacks on quantum key distribution that don't have CVEs or CWEs. It's a bit of a you know, sort of a sticking point for it. Uh, but there are attacks that are out there against QKD, and the vendors don't want you to kind of know about those. So it's kind of shining a light on a very honest view of where things are. You know, we, QKD's got a lot of promise. I really like it, but I want there to be more. And at the moment, there isn't. So there you've got a very different kind of solution that isn't just PQC, which may or may not be secure against quantum computers. We're not really certain. You've got a very different solution that should work, but it's really hard, and maybe we can fix it. Yeah, I mean, I see Quanta Village becoming, you know, revolutionary from that perspective and just getting new security-minded people thinking of quantum. So... Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute. Um, Quantum Village debuting this summer at DEF CON. Talk to me a little bit about the process that it took for you guys to initiate the village and, you know, your path up until this point. Because we're at the 11th hour, so y'all are ready to go. (laughs) I mean, theoretically, you're ready to go. Uh, I just got back to the I'm clearly going backwards. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, that, that's very kind. I mean, I think just in the run-up, I mean, both uh, Mark and I have been going to DEF CON. I, I, I don't think we've ever met at DEF CON, but, yeah. so that'll be fun. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think just, you know, from my perspective, dipping my toe in the water of cybersecurity and getting immersed in that ecosystem, I have always found DEF CON kind of my favorite conference. I have always found, I think, the implications, the ethics around a lot of these things very curious. And as a designer, you you know, something when you, like I look at things like inclusive design and the implications of when you're creating these systems, I think we do have this kind of fortune with quantum computing, unlike others, is that, you know, we're in a time where we're quite aware, we're quite aware of sustainability. You have things like ECG and so on, you know, governance, compliance, all these other things that people are quite mindful of what are the implications. And with that, it doesn't, you don't want it being built with lots of red tape and lots of legislation coming to put out fires. But actually, if you get people more aware of it now and having those conversations now, when it comes to building, with a lot of people who might come, they might never thought their career is going to go into quantum, but it might. And, you know, if you, if you have a good security engineer, you know, it might sow a seed today and maybe in a few years, they might find themselves dealing with those very issues, those threats that we talk about that aren't here today, but that are going to come. Um, but in terms of applying um, to get things done, I mean, there is a kind of application process that's sort of relatively simple. I don't know, Mark, maybe it's not. Uh, I think it was. I think it was straightforward. It sort of, we, we emailed and we didn't hear back for a few months. <laughs> and it was sort of like, oh, I guess that's the day. <laughs> yeah. Was there a lot of validation needed or was it like, Check mark. You're good to go. In, in defense of our application, I will say because we were looking at doing this, I think in 2020. So during lockdown, I think you know, even you and I, Chris, were chatting. Like you know, everyone was there, sort of percolating. What can I do? I was very much looking at doing. Um, I was working in kind of that nonprofit area within cybersecurity to kind of raise inclusion, those kinds of things. And um, I was getting like people kind of uh, approaching me for other things. I'm like, ah, that's sort of been done. And, you know, there's no point doing it for the sake of doing it. So we actually spent a long time kind of chewing through our application, getting our logos, things like that, planning what we what we what we would have liked to have, you know, experienced for, for other things. I mean, there are some really um, great other villages as well. So you know, it's kind of, we're very fortunate to have a kind of a template, you know, I don't want to be out there sort of claiming we've got um, huge amounts of originality, but there's, um, there was certainly a lot of care that went in. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be there for <laughs> sure. Um, what can attendees expect? Are you guys having, you know, conversational points? Are you going to have any demos set up? Like what, what, what should they expect? So um, there's a number of things that we're trying to do and how well they come off, we'll see. Uh, <laughs> but, but like we're trying to, we're working with some, some companies who want to help out and are effectively sponsors for uh, the event where we want to have, so we're going to try and have like the world's first quantum capture the flag. Yeah. Nice. And, and that's, that's something that we're very excited about. The company doing it with us are also really excited about. We're finalizing things and, Working out how to do challenges, um, they're sort of looking at how they can sort of support it and build it out. It's it's really exciting to do something like that. That literally, 
you know, a room full of, you know, a, well, a Zoom call full of very smart people are all like, um, so, so what do we, um, what do we do now? That's actually kind of a bit refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's not, I, I think that's the fun bit of DEF CON is it's less sort of scripted. Um, yeah. as you find with all the other kind of big security conferences, obviously there are cool ones like B-sides as well. Um, but we also, um, we would, we were, I mean, I was sort of desperate. We have to get a quantum computer there because a lot of people haven't really seen one, um, including myself. Um, and you know, the idea that they're very beautiful. Um, if you look at the kind of cooling towers, they look like chandeliers, but the next best option, which is probably good for a carbon footprint of shifting one of those things is that we will be having access to a quantum computer. So attendees will be able to use one, which I think is probably even better than just staring at something like a sort of old school museum, like you're on a school trip. Um, <laughs> and that's being sort of fleshed out. I don't know, Mark, if we've kind of, I, mean, I know you're doing some notebooks right now. Um, yeah. We're sort of testing that out. Yeah. So the finalizing this stack has been a bit of a, so I've got ideas for how to do certain things. I've written some, I've published some blogs and some uh, publicly available like uh, uh, notebooks on like uh, Google Colab, if anyone's familiar. So there are some Python notebooks, which um, we can put some links somewhere for people to access, where I show you how to break XOR encryption with a known plain text attack on a quantum computer. Now, yes, people will be screaming at me, you don't need to do that. And I'm like, no, you don't. But that's not the point. Um, you choose a very straightforward example that we understand really well, that we don't need to have as an example of how to break encryption. Uh, because you could, if you have, so the attack is a known plain text attack. And anyone who's done a little bit of cryptography will know that if you have the plain text and ciphertext, you can XOR them together to get the key out. That's part of how XOR is sort of, well, that's how you break it. Uh, if it's like an uh, XOR firmware or that kind of thing, you just try a few things out and you can get the key. So w the point of that, though, is not to like educate you on how to break this. It's to show you how to break this very familiar attack in a very unfamiliar setting, which is doing it on a quantum computer. So I've got some ideas like that that are already ready to go. I'm rewriting them uh, to fit in with the stack that goes with the people who are providing us with the access. Um, so we're using various libraries, which will all be made very clear by the time we get to the event, to construct various workshops. Um, we're also looking at having some kind of interactive, almost like exhibits, uh, seminars or uh, uh, sessions, open sessions on like how to build a quantum simulator. Like I've, um, I've actually built a prototype of a badge, which... Uh, might turn into a DEFCON badge add-on, actually, but it's an embedded quantum simulator that runs on a Raspberry Pi uh, Pico. Wow. And no one's done. No one's done that. The reason yeah. is why? Why would you do that? And the, when the, when you say, "Oh, because DEFCON," no one questions it, right? Like it's the kind <laughs> of crazy thing. Like no one, there's no advantage to doing it except to be able to say that I am wearing a quantum simulator. Right. And that is DEF CON cool. I think anyway. So, uh, we're looking at, sort of, we're looking at sort of, uh, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're looking at maybe trying to get that, uh, done. So that means I definitely have to get some PCBs made now. Um, but things like that are where we're sort of moving. Um, and then of course we've got some speakers as well. Uh, who are sort of mm -hmm. coming along 
um, nice. including uh, one speaker uh, from uh, who's recently who's the lead author on a paper on transitioning enterprise to post quantum cryptography. Nice. Yeah. So, like that question that you said, like how are people going to deal with this? You know, how are people going to actually make this work? Well, we've got a guy who's published at probably one of the most respectable journals in the world, um, and he's going to come say hello, be around, and uh, actually um, interact with the community of over. You know, okay, here's how you do it. And no, not everyone at DEFCON is from an enterprise background. They don't have to be. Like, it's an interesting problem, I think, anyway. So for us to showcase that and go, look, here's how you solve this kind of problem, whilst balancing things like FIPS regulations and GDPR and everything else, depending on where you are, which jurisdiction you're in. And these are... I maybe I, I I enjoy making problems in my life, but I genuinely think that these are interesting questions. And then, how are we going to use quantum computers in security? Once you've got enough qubits, can you use those for optimizing blue team problems? We'd see the amount of data coming in from CrowdStrike, log files, Elasticsearch instances, vast amounts of data. And we have already said, well, a quantum computer is a really good optimizer. So is there or are there ways of utilizing that power in a way that benefits cybersecurity professionals? Yeah, and DEFCON is where you're going to need to be. You're going to have elite hackers that are going to be able to, you know, share their thoughts with you. And then from that, you're going to be able to potentially spawn new ideas. Well, I mean, I've, I've got an idea of actually making the world's first quantum hackers because I've got some ideas I'd like to, you know, sort of push forward. Where... So you're recruiting there as well. <laughs> well, um, I don't have a business, full disclosure. I'm not recruiting people like that. But I, but I, I absolutely... I am. You're not. scouting, you're scouting. I, I, am abs- <laughs> I absolutely am trying to get people to think about, like, okay, so like I said... The control machinery for a quantum computer is just other computers. Oh, well, hang on. I know how to hack those. But what what payload would you put onto a, those, machi- those control machinery, those control computers, to be able to affect a quantum computer's output for some advantage? And all I'm going to say is, like a trailer, all I'm going to say is, I've got some ideas. I'd love to discuss them with people at DEF CON. There you go. Leave him with that. I'm going to be a quantum hacker. <laughs> That's it. So yeah, I can't wait. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Um, <laughs> so let's see, where can, outside of Quantum Village, where can listeners to this show, if they can't make it out to DEF CON, where can our listeners find you both online as well as information on Quantum Village online? Yeah, there's quantumvillage.org. Um, it's not very beautiful right now, but over the coming weeks, it will uh, start getting populated as we sort of get things more set in stone. Okay. Um, and I, I mean, there are a couple of podcasts and other things. I don't know. Well, post DEFCON, are you planning on putting any findings or maybe conversations that you have had on that website? Is that some somewhere that you know we could use as a resource? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, for us, you know, it's an an annual thing. We've already had a lot of interest of, you know, come to this country, come here, come there. 
um, you know, there is something quite unique about DEF CON and I think that is special. I, I do believe it's still being streamed. I think the nice thing about um, post-COVID is a lot of people have kept those things in so you can still um, tap into that. Um, but we'll be definitely doing maybe like some webinars and things. I think nice. we were scheduled to do some in the coming weeks. I think it's just that uh, get it, getting the time and, and coordinating that's always a little challenging. So we're starting to push more stuff out as well. Uh, we have a LinkedIn group called Quantum Village, and we, of course, have a Twitter handle uh, at Quantum underscore Village. Uh, so like, we're trying to get those kickers into gear, get them busier, get them interested. We do have still an open uh, call for participation for people to sort of come. We'll probably keep that open quite a bit just because, you know, we want to, we want to get people really sort of who are enthused by this idea of, oh, I want to go and be a quantum hacker now. Like, oh yeah, come and be one. Come and learn what's going on. Come and see how it is. And like Victoria said, the reaction to people has not been as, uh, poo pooed as it might have been maybe a few years ago. I think some people are waking up to the idea that this is going to be something. We actually don't know what, so it's going to be quite exciting or terrifying. <laughs> and, and I think we've sort of curated it in a way that it's everything from, you know, like the paper we mentioned in Nature, which, you know, for any of your listeners, you know, it's a very, very good one because it's very concise got some, some cool names on it as well who are very experienced in, in the cybersecurity industry, which I think also helps and alongside academia. So there's that kind of cross-pollination. Um, cool. And I saw on the website that you had a, uh, you had a call for participation. Um, when does that expire? Is that running up into a certain date or can, can folks still reach out via the website and, and be able to be involved with this? Um, absolutely. And, you know, even if they don't make this year, there's always next year. Um, but I, I, I'd hasten to add to the better <laughs> just to make our lives a bit easier because we, you know, really do want to fit in um, things that we think would be important to include. Awesome. So when you're not immersed with the quantum computing realm, where's the best bar to go to? And Victoria, you go to you go to DEF CON. So it could be in Vegas. Oh gosh! When you put Vegas up against Delaware, I don't know if you're going to go the Delaware route, but you can. <laughs> and then, uh, Mark, where wherever you're dwelling, it could be Paris, it could be Vegas, wherever you. I mean, where's the best bar that you've been to? Well, there, there is a Paris and Vegas, isn't there? You know, he could be there right now. <laughs> That's true. Paris That's true. <laughs> I never stipulated. I never stipulated. That is true. <laughs> Um, okay. Well, oh God, you know, I've been taken to some very strange places in DEF CON, which is, is not going to sound good because I think there's always these kind of, I think, isn't there like a other conference called like Novel Con or something? I, I can't even keep up or like off strip, you know, a lot of, a lot of the guys will kind of organize houses and things and I sort of have to. It's like the B-sides, B-side. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Fortunately, I've always had good friends or colleagues who are sort of, you know, um, also being foreign, you know. But I will actually say I will go for for Delaware, the tri-state area. Okay. Um, just because I I'm probably more seasoned um there, and I will go for somewhere which is called Wesley's, and it's actually I think in Maryland or Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> And I love it. It's one of my favorite places. They have karaoke on Thursdays. I really recommend it. They have, I think it's like wings night. Um, 
you know, when I started going to the US, I didn't actually eat wings. And I think I might have just about be uh, converted, although I did start using a knife and fork, um, which is probably very embarrassing for people sitting <laughs> with me. Um, that. Uh, but that, that's, that's the US TikTok. I can give you more, but... <laughs> I give us one in the UK. Uh, well, I wouldn't say a bar. I'm, my favourite place to sort of go for 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 tea actually is a place called the, Wol- the Wolseley. So I always <laughs> joke about going from the Wolseley to Wesley's and back again. But it's uh, it's in central London. It's quite near where the. Wait, are you saying the same place with a different accent? No. <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is because from what you described of Wesley's. And from what I know of the Wolseley, they sound very, very different. Yeah, I, I, I guess I would take, you know, a meeting with a CISO at the Wolseley and then we'd, you know, meet all the reverse engineers at Wesley's. So that would sort of balance it out. And <laughs> okay, wow. I, I, I don't think I can live up to that. What I'm going to do is go to... Uh, uh, well, okay, I would go to one of my favourite, like... There's, there's many pubs. I, I'm a pub goer. Sorry, it's, it's in my blood. I'm British. Uh, I go to pubs. I will probably go to in London either the City of York because it's a Sam Smith's pub, which means that all oh, the beer is really cheap um, and it's really kind of cute inside. They've got this lovely little booth, so you can feel like your conspirators because uh, they're really narrow, really tightly packed in. You can fit four people, and that's it. Um, uh, I, I quite like it there. It's kind of fun. Or I would choose somewhere like along the river. So near ha- the near Hammersmith Bridge, there's a load of uh, uh, a load of pubs near there. Uh, it's near where they sit, film one of the scenes in the most recent Bond movie. So there's occasionally people taking photographs as if they were with the characters, which is always kind of cute. Maybe they're just looking for spies. Or they're just looking for spies uh, because they made the film about it, and that's, of course, where they're going to go. Uh, But no, I'd probably go for a drink around there. There's quite a few pubs around there, the Black Lion, the uh, Blue, uh, the... Oh, I can't remember. The Ships ships in. A few others, yeah. So I I, I like drinking by a river um, because... I, I do. I just grew up with it. I, I'm from Liverpool, so if you're uh, uh, if you're actually looking for bars in my hometown, I go to a bar called Bar Savar. Spot the French way. Um, actually, a tequila bar. Okay. Um, and if you don't go there sober, please. And if you do get there, uh, see if they still do a thing that a mate of mine and I invented called the so they have flavored tequilas and we invented the fruit salad to make ourselves think we were being healthy which was just six shots of flavored tequila (laughs) (laughs) nice nice they still have it um i I don't know but i there was a, a few bar people who i would order that with um i don't know their names all i know is that they were wonderful people i'll have to go validate that for you and this is in what area again, specifically? This is in Liverpool, uh, out the way. Uh, in the United Kingdom. Yes, it's where the Beatles are <laughs> I don't are know from. what your audience is like in the Yeah, Kingdom. yeah, United Kingdom. Let me, yeah, let me specify that. Yeah. It's where all the music that your parents listen to. <laughs> yes. I actually didn't like the Beatles when I was in Liverpool, uh, which is, you know, absolute heresy. You're going to be allowed back in. Yeah, I am because I because of what I'm about to say, which is. But now I've left. I listen to them regularly. There you go. Oh, there you go. 
All right. You've redeemed yourself. I hope so. All right. So I just heard last call here. Do you guys have time for one more? Sure. Always. Mark, I'm going to hit you first because you answered first. Okay. If you opened a cybersecurity themed bar, what would the name be and what would your signature drink be called? Oh, okay. Uh, I would open a bar, uh, probably in Maryland, because that's that seems to be the cool place for this kind of thing. <laughs> I would open a bar called uh, the Entangled State, and I would have a drink called the Whiskey Cubit. The Whiskey Cubit, I love it. Entangled State, so you get you get twisted in there. I've, essentially, is what you're saying. That, that's exactly where I'm going. <laughs> whiskey cubit okay um you can go so many ways with that literally well uh and and you can go the other way and everyone knows about it uh, but- oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> well maryland's only like 10 minutes from me so um i i should be able to make it home safely that's a quick uber ride all right victoria what's up what you got Oh gosh, is it a bar or a cocktail? No, it's both. You need a bar name and you need a drink name. Oh gosh. Okay, well then I'll just have to be quite um, obvious and call it Super Positions. <laughs> what, what is it called? Super Positions. Secret <laughs> Positions? No, Super Positions. Oh, sorry. <laughs> God, we need subtitles. <laughs> super Positions, okay. And it would be partly in like quantum village and vegas it would also be on top of the bergheim in berlin <laughs> and everyone would be drinking quantinis uh which would have tea in it because i quite like drinking tea uh quantinis <laughs> maybe, maybe yerba mate because that's what they they drink in berlin to sort of keep up um stay up late i think that'll be about it having worked in berlin that sounds like the best thing ever yeah, but can you get into the Bergheim? This might allow you to. Yeah, I can. It's yeah. very hard. Maybe you have to solve like this. This you got to you know decrypt some quantum algorithm to get in. Like so, when you get in, you you're dealing with people that know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> make it some make some math problem at the door. I don't know because you just don't want anyone walking in. You don't want oh. someone you know that's coming over from the world league walking in. That's terrible. We do. That's like, we that's do. Like, that's we do. Come that's to like, Quantum Village then. Yeah, it's like exactly. a, it's <laughs> well, we'll have. That's well, why we'll like super positions. <laughs> exactly. Well, 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 then we'll have to have a uh, have Quantinis and whiskey cubits at QV, won't we? Like yes. <laughs> I, I'm not sure after you talking about this. Uh, What's it? Quadruple type tequila drink. I don't think it's too late to get a bartender at at Quantum Village, especially. Well, we'll, we'll have to <laughs> the Quantini, or maybe we'll, maybe Mark will be back there making making drinks. I don't know, or maybe I can come do it. I can make drinks. You can come help. <laughs> All right. Well, um, yeah. Thank you both for for stopping by Barcode. I appreciate you both sharing your knowledge, and really look forward to seeing you both at DefCon. Absolutely. Amazing. So likewise. And thank you for having us. Absolutely. You guys take care. As you know, Barcode is where security and IT professionals hang out after a long day. So get your message front and center to our fans by sponsoring an episode. 
Learn more at the barcodepodcast.com slash sponsor. Cheers. Unfortunately, it's time to shut the bar down for this episode. Thanks for stopping in. See you next time. We'll save you a seat. Be sure to check us out at thebarcodepodcast.com.